0: Welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project, brought to you from the University of Edinburgh at the moment. Uh, my name is Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined with my co-host...
1: David Robertson.
0: We are brought to you in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions. And David, um, well, I'm sad and relieved in some senses to say that this is our, our last episode before the summer break it's indeed but it won't be too long before we're back
1: on your airwaves
0: <laughs> yeah the summer break always seems to you know uh, it's it's a blissful occurrence when it happens and it's it's know, over it flies over past
1: it seems like a blink of an eye
0: But we're going to use all the time that we spend on the rsp to you know really advance our, our own work and yeah. research and we'll have so much news for you when we come back but we'll save that A bit more on that for after the podcast, uh, which is with uh, Julie Exline um, speaking about religious and spiritual struggles with a new interviewer, Alex Ustavides. Um, We'll just say, take it away, Alex.
2: Hi, this is uh, Alex Ustavides, and I'm here today interviewing Professor Julie Exline of Case Western Reserve University for the Religious Studies Project. Um, today we're here to talk a little bit about the uh, Religious and Spiritual Struggle Scale, which has kind of been developed off of a pretty big grant from the John Templeton Foundation. And, um, okay, let's get started.
3: Yes, I'm, I'm really grateful to have the, the chance to talk about it. For about the last 15 years, uh, I've had this interest in the idea that even though religion and spirituality – are often uh, a source of comfort for people or a source of security or positive emotion. There's also this flip side where, uh, for people who are religious and for people who aren't, there's often a lot of uh, struggle, tension, difficulty around different aspects of religion and spirituality as well. So right now we have a, a large project going where we're really trying to understand some of the different types of religious and spiritual struggle, uh, some of the different ways that these can be predicted, both by things like personality and things like uh, life events or stress, and also the ways that people cope with these struggles and what some of the most effective ways might be to cope with them. So the project includes several large longitudinal studies and a lot of other little smaller studies on things that are of interest to us, and we're really excited about it. Cool,
2: yeah, all that sounds great. Um, So what, I mean, I know that like one of the big impetuses of starting the project was wanting to get kind of a better grip of a lot of measures that had been floating around, which kind of hinted at struggles, but nothing really directly got at it. I guess uh, Ken Pargament's ARCO was the closest um, but you wanted to get something more specific.
3: Yes, um, So many people have been using uh, the religious coping measures, both the, the full R cope and the brief R cope uh, by Ken Pargament and his colleague for, for many years now. So the, the brief R actually was published first, came out in the late 1990s and the, and the full RCOPE came out in 2000. And in, in those measures, uh, the emphasis is on how people use religion to cope uh, with stress and negative life events. And uh, what, what were called the negative religious coping dimensions tapped into a lot of things that in our current work we would call struggle. So, you know, feeling like you're being punished by God, for example, or not feeling supported by your religious community. Those were framed in the R-Cope as being like maybe ineffective means of coping that use religion, but more recently, uh, Ken Pargament had, had started to use the language of religious and spiritual struggles to refer to the negative religious coping concepts from those measures. We also had a little measure that we developed ourselves that came out uh, in 2000 uh, that was with uh, myself. Ann Yali and Bill Sanderson, called the Religious Comfort and Strain Scale, which focused on the idea that religion can be comforting, but then we also had three subscales looking at what we called strains around Mm -hmm. religion. Uh, There was the idea of alienation from God, interpersonal struggles around religion, and then religious fear and guilt. But what we were looking to do now, and this is working with Ken Pargament, we wanted to have a, a measure that really captured uh, multiple domains of struggle. It's by no means exhaustive, but we have six different domains, uh, whereas a lot of people have been using the brief RCOPE, which just has, I think it's seven items on mm-hmm. negative religious coping, of, and five of them are related to God. So five of them are really tapping what we call divine struggle. There's one on demonic and one on interpersonal. And most people weren't using the big RCOP. Uh mm-hmm. They were using this abbreviated one instead. So really, most of the studies are getting primarily at divine struggle that are using that. And in our new measure, we wanted something that tapped six domains of struggle yeah. uh, instead of just the hitting divine so heavily.
2: Yeah. And I guess um, so for folks listening in, um, the six domains are, what is it, demonic. Um divine moral struggle, um uh, which I always call guilt struggle, and then get corrected on it um and the rest are fleeting right now
3: <laughs> yes it's okay it's probably my job to describe them so we've got we've got two two struggles that are supernaturally focused with the focus on God, which is divine struggle, and then demonic struggle, which is feeling like you're being attacked or harassed by the devil or evil spirits and then beset we've by got, pardon beset by demons <laughs> yes yes and then we have the the interpersonal struggles around religion uh, which basically have to do with the idea of you're having some conflicts or disagreements with religious people or with organized religion and again this could be for people who are religious or those who are not and then we've got three that are more individually focused so we've got uh, the moral struggles, which you mentioned, uh, which have to do with feeling guilty about things that you've done wrong or struggling to follow your moral principles. Mm-hmm. And then we've got doubt related struggles where you're having, you're feeling doubts or questions about your beliefs and you're bothered by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have struggles of ultimate meaning, which get at the idea that you're having trouble. Finding or sensing a sense of ultimate meaning or purpose for your life. So those are the six domains. Yeah,
2: and uh, you know I know that one of the things we've definitely, especially uh, David Bradley and I, uh, the two kind of more recent non-believer students, and then now also Nick Stoner in the lab, um, we've been focusing on these kind of issues of whether or not people who are non-religious, who don't believe in a religion, especially don't believe in a singular divine figure whether or not they can work with this. And I know that one of the big problems that kind of the field has been grappling with is this issue of, okay, we have all this research literature on um, you know religious believers, but how do we translate this? Um, And I know you had mentioned kind of wanting to build the RSS as a scale which can be used with non-believers as well right from the start. So is that kind of why it's modular like it is?
3: well it's modular for a few reasons i mean we we were wanting to just tap these six different types of struggles so that in itself was going to make it you know multidimensional and modular but one thing that we were very careful to do because we did want to maximize the the utility of the scale among nonbelievers was that we we did really did our best to keep all of the god focused language or um language that might be really focused on uh, particular traditions in that divine subscale. So none of the other subscales include anything about, you know, words about God or the divine or mm-hmm. sin, for example, which might be taken to be a, you know, something coming from a, a theistic context. Yeah. So other than the, uh, the divine and the demonic subscales which are the two supernatural ones our thought was that the uh, the measure would have pretty good utility among people who didn't believe in God or or in the supernatural and with the uh, the recent work that uh, you and Nick stoner and others have have looked at with with looking at measurement and variance testing of the scale among non-religious non-spiritual individuals and also non-believers we're we're pleased that it looks as though the structure is holding up pretty well um but the certainly something like the demonic subscale which which goes very heavily with um especially monotheistic uh kind of christian orthodox beliefs that's not holding up well but we wouldn't really expect it to we would expect to kind of be bottoming out yeah. And there's actually a little more on the divine subscale that works than, than we might have expected with uh, with non-religious people and even non, non-believers. non So we're, we're pleased about that.
2: Yeah, no, and that's definitely one of the things I was kind of surprised about. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised looking at the measurement invariant stuff, finding that, uh, you know, I had on the demonic subscale, I had never seen doing like data cleaning, stats analysis, a skew, like not only of double digits, but like around 20 or 30. Um, I think we just floored out so hard on non-believers with the demonic subscale, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the divine one is interesting, and I think it might talk a little bit to this idea of, you know, the I, non-believers are not unitary in terms of non-belief is not the atheist movement, um, right. and so I know that you've gotten some other stuff along those lines with agnostics in the past. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Uh, in terms of where the, the struggles have shown up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, in terms of the the studies that we've done, say, just looking at the, the RSS measure, on most of those, what we tended to do is uh, group people together where if, if people were endorsing themselves as nonbelievers, whether it was more of an atheist or agnostic belief, we would – we would basically tell them to um, endorse uh, the lowest value on the scale or that they could skip items. But, but what we do sometimes find is that more so among agnostics than among atheists, uh, so people will say that they they don't believe in God, but then will still sometimes report uh, some emotions toward God, which can include sometimes some positive ones and sometimes... Uh, divine struggle. So you, you run into some interesting things where there are people who uh, in particular don't, they are not sure, they don't want to commit. Mm-hmm. They think that there might be a God and they're trying to leave the possibility open. Uh, they do sometimes uh, report some divine struggle, for example, even though we're trying to be very careful to not force anyone to answer those items. And when and then we have this whole other line of work that that is focused specifically on non-believers and the uh, the their hypothetical images of God so some of the work that David Bradley has done and, and some of the work that that you and I have both done also uh, just really looking at for for non-believers uh, how much of a big deal is the is something like anger at God as a reason that somebody would stop believing in yeah. God yeah. or to yeah. decide that God does not exist. And, and basically what we find is people are certainly not reporting that as a predominant reason, but quite often there's like a flicker of that in, in their history. And if you ask people to look at the hypothetical God image, what do you think God would be like? Some people report that they think that God would be, um, you know, positive, you know, that this would be really cool. I wish there were a God. We were kind of surprised mm-hmm. by how much of that there was, but yeah. then some are saying basically, yeah, I think that God, if God exists is mean and allows suffering and unfairness, and this is bad. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we see a lot of, we see a lot of interesting emotions around the concept of God for non believers. And that's been really fun to, to start looking at that. Yeah.
2: And I think it's definitely, um, uh, very heterogeneous, you know, even going into this, uh, with kind of our God image work, I was expecting to see more, I guess, uniformity, um, and more like negative or kind of, I guess, overly intellectualized responses along the lines of, you know, well, I can't answer this simply because I don't believe in that sort of thing. But we were able to get a lot of pretty rich qualitative data.
3: Yeah. In, in our, in our very first study on anger at God, which, <clears throat> ran back when I was on an internship in so said, uh, this is the
2: CNN
3: article, uh, no, no. The CNN okay. article came out in, two, in uh, 2011. I'm talking about stuff that we were doing back in okay.
2: 1996.
3: <laughs> um, oh, wow. OK. Yeah. So when I was just graduating, we our first study of anger toward God, um, we debated about whether to even include anybody who didn't believe in God, because our assumption was that, well, the items wouldn't be relevant for them. Mm -hmm. But let's go ahead and just be inclusive and include everyone. Uh, We didn't include any special prompts in that that one for nonbelievers. We just looked to see if people would answer the items. And we expected that people would skip them. But we actually got a lot of anger toward God, again, with these non-nuanced items that we had. We had a lot of people saying, I don't believe, but I'm angry. And that's actually where the whole impetus for looking at this uh, came from. So that's been almost 20 years ago now that we started seeing, to our surprise, that there was a subset of people who said that they uh, they didn't believe in God, but were endorsing uh, these feelings of anger and yeah. disappointment and unforgiveness, which we were looking at at the time.
2: And so going from there, is that kind of what kicked off the interest in moving into including uh, non-believers more broadly?
3: Yeah, yeah. We were um, initially, because I was coming out of uh, doing work on interpersonal forgiveness and looking at things very relationally, we had thought that the work would only make sense if we were looking at people who perceived themselves as having a personal relationship with God. And that's the context in which anger and forgiveness uh, would be relevant, but because we got those interesting findings early on, yeah, that's what caused me. You know, we did another study in like 2000. That part of that did become part of the that later CNN article. We started asking more more nuanced questions to nonbelievers, asking about hypothetical images or how do you think you would feel if 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 this happened, but we didn't ask them. Um, in the most careful way. We still didn't have a good level of nuance in there, but that's definitely where the interest came from.
2: And I guess we keep referencing uh, the CNN article, so it might be worth talking about a little bit. Um, This was kind of a big kerfluffle that occurred um, a couple years ago. And um, it actually, I think, generated some useful data as kind of David's been working with for the past uh, year and a half or so. Um, But do you want to describe that a little bit?
3: Uh, in terms of the the media
2: misunderstandings
3: yes. that happened, yes. So uh, we had we wrote an article uh, that came out in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that was <clears throat> basically intended just to lay an empirical foundation for this concept of anger toward God and and just trying to show that this does exist some of the really simple predictors, some demographic differences, some correlates with mental and physical health. Very, very simple, straightforward stuff. Uh, and it was a good a good article, but not super exciting because we were, we were just trying to lay the foundation. But we did ha- re- include a few analyses that were framed kind of as supplemental analyses, yeah. just showing that um, for some non-believers, they would report uh, anger, anger toward God on some of the measures. Or if God did exist, I'd be angry. You know, again, we, we weren't always the most nuanced with how we were assessing it. Anger focused on a hypothetical uh, image of God or a past history of anger toward God. So, when I was speaking with the uh, the reporter at CNN uh, going, going through the results of the study, I think there was just a desire to, you know, find what's exciting. And we were almost ready to get off the phone. And she said, is there anything else? (laughs) And I said, said, well, there is, there are some of these really kind of provocative findings about, about non-believers. You know, these weren't a big part Mm -hmm. of the paper, but I told, I told her about them. Um, and then the, um, the article ended up Focusing very heavily on on that, so the the article actually came out on January first of two thousand and eleven, and the headline was "Anger at God Common Even Among Atheists." Um, and to the reporter's credit, she did actually quickly check this title with me uh, yeah. before before it was going to run. Not long before, so it's not. I, I don't blame the reporter because I think. I think that, um, she could tell that I was actually, you know, I thought these were among the most exciting findings in a, in a somewhat flat paper in other ways. Um, but I was nervous about the headline, but I also knew that she had to make it catchy if people were going to see it. So, um, then she went ahead with that and there was a lot of, um, a lot of controversy stirred up because I think, you know, the way that it's framed, it, it can imply that, that Atheists actually believe in God, or the, and that God actually exists, and that if people say they don't believe, they're just angry. And then, you know, why are you atheists always so angry? Oh, it must be because you yep. actually believe in God. And look, you're getting angry about the article, therefore that proves. So, th- there was there was a lot of uh, kind of pushback on that, and many many comments uh, to which I eventually stopped trying to respond and explain myself. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because you know that's just uh, it's like trying to turn back the tide with a thimble.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I think the comment that I put in to clarify it, you know, ended up being like a number one thousand something, <laughs> <laughs> which probably nobody ever saw. Yeah. Uh, and um, I went around I went around other blogs that were that were posting from it and tried to correct it more quickly on those, but uh, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't stem the tide on this, but. You know, I'm, I'm happy that it got people thinking about it, but I was, of course, upset about the um, the misunderstandings and didn't want anybody to feel dismissed uh, or were provoked by what we were trying to report. We were actually trying to be inclusive mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, this is a phenomenon that may be of some relevance to nonbelievers too, at least some nonbelievers." So, yeah. if, you're, if you're assessing this stuff, just because somebody's a nonbeliever doesn't mean that That you'd ignore this because there might still be something important there. That's what we were trying to do, but it it didn't. It wasn't felt that way uh, by a lot of people.
2: And I guess in some ways, what's almost interesting about it is, regardless of belief factor or not, um, you know, we talked earlier about uh, tying some of this into health and you know, kind of mental wellness, mental well-being. even if there's not a belief there, if there's still a lot of emotion around it, that could certainly have tie-ins to kind of broader mental health or well-being issues.
3: Absolutely, and and we do find that um, at some level, and this this isn't in, in published work yet, but when people when people get angry at God and they choose to exit the relationship. A lot of times the, the anger doesn't resolve. Now, it might not be focused on God anymore, but people still stay angry. Yeah. So, so um, and, and people who are angry a lot, regardless of where that anger is focused, yeah, that's going to tend to have some consequences for mental health, um, possibly relationships, possibly physical health as mm-hmm. well.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And I know uh, some of our recent work, uh, you mentioned the God image stuff. Um, it's almost been, and again, this is tapping into stuff that we haven't sent out for publication yet too much, but just in regards to like a lot of similarities in terms of what people are saying with some our qualitative data between believers and non-believers when you kind of set up and construct it properly for the non-believers as kind of a hypothetical um, in terms of like the questions that you would ask, that there's a very similar vein of you know these ideas of theodicity like questions about suffering which might be generating a lot of the common struggles between both groups.
3: Yeah so we have this this question that I've been including in studies for like ten years and we've we've just started looking at it more closely. But it's for people who who at least have some kind of image of God. Mm-hmm. They they get this question where we ask uh, if you were imagine yourself standing in a doorway where God or the presence of God is on one side and not on the other um and we and then we ask people if they would want to approach God or to stand still uh or to walk away and then we also ask people uh if you could if you could say anything that you wanted to God you know without yeah. without fear of what would happen, what would you say and and how do you think God would respond and what we find with those kinds of questions is that uh, among believers, you know, in terms of the behavioral stuff, it's very much approach-oriented. Yes. Some, some will some will endorse staying still, and very few will endorse walking away. And among non-believers, they're just more clustered together. Approaching, I, I believe, is often still around the top, and then you've mm-hmm. got the standing still and the walking away. But they're a lot more likely to endorse the standing still and the walking away than the believers. Yeah. Um, and, and when it comes to the, what people would want to say to God, uh, yes, the, the questions about unfairness and suffering and the presence of evil in the world and, and kind of a sense of where, where are you and why didn't you intervene or why won't you intervene are common for um, for non-believers and believers, but they do show up more, I believe, in the in the the written statements of the non-believers. There's those, but the it's important though that the themes are common yes. uh, between both groups. It's just, but they are endorsed at a higher level among the non-believers. But they're you know asking if you get down to what's bugging people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, people want answers to these same questions about suffering and unfairness and evil, whether they believe in God or not.
2: And it's kind of you know I think some of the interesting cognitive uh, research that's been coming out on theory of mind, saying that you know perhaps people who are non-believers might be a little bit more. They might need kind of a uh, cognitive sureness um you know they might have they might not be able to deal with these ambiguities quite as well and they need an answer to them and so potentially one of the ways of answering this is to then exit the religious beliefs
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean and i think the the theory of mind work is still pretty new and i think pretty controversial so i don't want to weigh in too much on that or on what i think about that because i'm um I don't want to speak beyond the you know the work that that um, that I have done that I'm more mm-hmm. familiar with but I think that there is a general question about people um, are you are you willing to to trust when there is when there are tough questions yeah. related to God or ultimate existential issues some people have a um, a stronger desire than others to just get closure on that mm-hmm. and for for somebody somebody might choose to get closure by saying uh, i don't believe this a loving yes. god couldn't do this therefore i'm out other other people on the other side though could also um kind of push for closure by saying <clears throat> well it must have been god's will or there must be a good purpose and kind of denying their own pain and suffering so yeah There there are ways to kind of close the door on those tough questions on both sides that that make a lot of sense. You can see what people are trying to do, but then the emotion sometimes doesn't get resolved because it's kind of getting pushed down rather than really getting deeply addressed in some cases.
2: And going back to, I think, this kind of idea of anger and how these sorts of issues and struggles are resolved, and in particular, kind of the approach versus avoidance. Um, One of the interesting things in kind of neuropsychological work on emotion that's been found recently is that anger is actually in some ways an approach behavior. Um, Yes. You know, you might approach somebody to hit them in the face. And so I don't know if we've looked deeply enough at kind of correlating these responses, but is there any kind of correlation between approach behavior and more anger that we found in these God images?
3: In, in some of the, the newer stuff, and this is some of the stuff that I'm really interested in, I mean, what we find is that the, there's a, a category of behaviors that um, I'm kind of waffling about what to call it, uh, complaint uh, lament voice, um, is kind of assertive behaviors toward God that could also become aggressive, like okay. complaining, asking, asking why, um, uh, kind of, kind of struggling with God about stuff. Those, it's a very interesting category because it, in most of the data sets, at least as I, if I recall correctly, that's correlating positively with, um, with all the anger stuff, yeah. and sometimes with the exit, but also with the approach. So mm-hmm. there's there's this idea that um, being engaged in a relationship often entails conflict, yeah, and and that um, there's actually some things to be said for um, being assertive and not just kind of sitting back and being passive. Uh, in this, in, in relationships in general, and that could include, for a believer, a perceived relationship with God. So in, in one study that we published um, a few years ago, I think 2012, mm-hmm. we were looking at whether or not people found it morally acceptable to protest against God. And this was among uh, just believers in this yes. study. And what we found was that the people who reported the most Resilient relationships with God, and who were most likely to say that their faith had been strengthened as a result of a a negative life event um, that involved God, were people who who said that it was morally wrong to exit the relationship um, with God. But once you controlled for that, they also tended to say, "But it's morally right. It's morally okay to complain." Uh, to question, uh, and to basically assert myself. Yeah. And we also have some data right now um, looking at chronic pain patients, suggesting that among these people in a, a chronic headache program, that once you control for how angry people are at God, those who engage in these complaint strategies uh, are more mentally healthy at the time that the the program ends so it's not the anger toward god that's you know doing them any good that that correlates with poor outcomes but once you control for that the protest variable actually predicts better mental health outcome Um, you know if you're protesting when you come in you're going to be more less depressed less anxious etc when you get out
2: So potentially kind of just a, in some ways, almost greater behavioral activation, greater approach in general might be healthy, but one of the kind of side effects of that might be that some of this approach is kind of more complaint or aggression oriented.
3: Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't resolve the anger toward God. So we don't find, we don't find that people who are, uh, you know, complaining and lamenting at time one are more likely to resolve their anger toward God at time two. That's not what's mm-hmm. driving the effect. I think it's more of a general kind of voice or assertiveness effect or being in touch with what you're feeling and, and being willing to go there rather than suppressing it. Um, we I have quite a few data sets suggesting that if people have some anger toward God but are trying to suppress it and, and are aware of that and can report that, um, that tends to cause the anger toward God to be sustained. Uh, Exit behavior also does. uh, Those are some interesting new things that we've been looking at.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I think that gives kind of an idea of where we're going in terms of how these then might relate back to either exiting or resolving struggles in one way or another. Um, And I think we're running a little short on time. Um, So I'd just like to say uh, thank you, Julie, uh, for interviewing today or telling us a little bit about the RSS um and yeah thank you everybody for listening um i've been alex used events uh interviewing professor julie exline about the religious and spiritual struggle scale um for the religious studies project
3: all right thank you thank you
1: well thanks very much for that alex and um welcome to the religious studies project I hope to hear more interviews from alex in the future and um thanks to Dr. X line as well of course and
0: and, uh, indeed to Tommy for setting that up, that's one of the the few times that uh, Tommy has wanted to do an interview but has been too busy to do it Um, (laughs) Tom, yeah so, we've got to stop it's just sounding like a Tommy Coleman love fest in in our podcast outros Um, so As I said at the start, this is our uh, our final one for the before the summer break. So we'll we'll be back in mid September. Um, We haven't quite set a date yet. Um, It it tends to be whenever the University of Edinburgh semester starts. Yeah, Um, it's It's a pretty standard kind. uh, you know, we're using our sort of normative UK uh, context, but it's not even normative UK. Other universities in the UK don't start mid September, so
1: no. I think this is the semester
0: system, so this actually yeah. fits with um, North America. Yeah. Well, that's, anyway, well, we're happy to be Edinburgh normative. We have to be something normative, so you know. um, But just because we're going to be breaking for the summer, it doesn't mean that the
1: RSP is going to be stopping. Indeed, not. Um, and in fact um, you were speaking to to Martin today weren't you um, yeah. Martin Lepage our
0: um, archives manager in uh, Montreal so he's going to be um, doing a lot of work sort of rationalizing the the archive at the the back end but um, he's going to be featuring various posts um, from throughout our four years yeah. um, on the front page of the site diving
1: um, into the um, to the
0: vast archive of now some 170,
1: 170 um, podcasts, something like that.
0: Yeah, so we look forward to that, and I've just said, Martin, you, you go, you find whatever you want. So um, uh, we've got no idea. he's, yeah. he's got autonomy there. It's so exciting.
1: yeah, look out for that. And of, of course, on top of that, Jana is going to be continuing to produce the um, uh, the Ops Digest every week through the summer. Yana's um, been doing astounding work there. Um, the Ops Digest continues to be bigger and better every. Yeah, every yeah. week, so very pleased with that. And um that will be landing in your inbox slash feed reader every week yeah. without fail.
0: And of course Venetia um, will be um, I was gonna say manning, uh, will be womaning our <laughs> uh, social media feeds. Um another um very hard worker there, um the I I thoroughly enjoy um, a lot of the content that comes through there on Facebook and Twitter. I do as well. Uh, so yeah, just um, keep a lookout. And um, we've also got um, some ideas for a few written pieces that will be coming out over the summer as well. Yes,
1: well, we, we should be. I can't quite announce that due to yeah. the fact it's not quite boxed off yet, yeah. but we we're working on something. And that might end up coming out just kind of... Not long before we come back. Yeah.
0: And there'll be some conference reports and things like that yeah, as well absolutely. along yeah, the way. In fact, I think we've got a few scheduled Yeah. Parties. And uh, on the topic of conferences, the big one for us
1: is the IAHR. Yeah, the, indeed, yes, the International Association for the History of Religion. Yeah. Quintennial yeah. Congress, it happens once every five years, and this is... 21st, one of them. I yeah, think. but it, they move to different continents each time, so this is probably the only time it will be in Europe for the next 25 years. So we sort of thought we had to be there. Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously, five years from now, um, both, uh, both of us and most of our um, team are going to be um, in sort of tenure-track jobs uh, with amazing salaries and we'll be able to afford to go to uh, wherever it is next time (laughs) cute one (laughs) so i love your sense of humor um
1: do we have any other news
0: not really just um the summer is the time that um a lot of the things that we keep saying we're going to do um happen yeah um so if you've got any suggestions as ever
1: editors at religiousstudiesproject.com or hit us up on facebook and Twitter and um, when we come back as well we'll be using our, our new recording equipment but with the proceeds from the um from the Amazon links that we're always asking you to um yeah. to use so uh, that you know we should the sound should be a lot better and um, you know that's that's been done by the listeners at no cost to them so yeah. And um
0: obviously Amazon doesn't shop for the summer, so any shopping Indeed. that you are doing on dot com, dot .co, uk yeah. or dot C A look us up. But um, shopping, yes. Um I think although we're about to start for the summer break, we've probably had our summer now in Edinburgh in the past three or four days. I'm actually wearing shorts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It happens about twice a year in Edinburgh. I
1: have a You're on holiday already. You've got your canvas tote bag and your shorts on there. You're raring to go. Yeah. Um, so uh, f- what, well, let's just wrap this up then and say, you know, um, thanks to you, Chris, thanks for to your you. hard work. Uh, thanks to our team of editors. And most of all... Thanks to you, f- David. No, <laughs> most of all, thanks to the listeners. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank uh-huh. you.